Well, good morning. morning. Check, check. Can you all hear me on my fancy microphone? Yes? Good, good. Thank you, Peter, for reading that passage. Uh, For those in kindergarten through sixth grade, you can be dismissed with Miss Carrie Jane, if you like, uh, for some age-focused teaching and activities. Well, I'm happy to be speaking up here this morning and not doing another pre-service recording in my living room. Uh, I am grateful for technology allowing us to be able to maintain connection. Uh, but since this isn't a recording, I can't go back and do it again if I mess something up. So brace yourselves. We're continuing our series through the book of Job, and we have basically covered one chapter at a time. Remember, in the structure <clears throat> of Job, the beginning chapters each present significant blocks of the story. But we are now in the first of three sections where Job's friends speak about what's going on with Job replying to them. So this sermon is technically covering the next 10 chapters, chapters 4 through 14. So if we take the base sermon time of last Sunday and multiply it tenfold, we should be done by... uh, Let me again open up dismissal with Miss Carrie Jane. Uh, Now's your chance. Well, for those who haven't joined us in this series so far or are unfamiliar with Job, we've been talking a lot about suffering. So now Job's friends, who up to this point have been sitting with him in silence for seven days as he mourns his losses and afflictions, begin to voice their thoughts and perspectives on things. And all of us at some point have been or will be in a similar position. We will be going through or have just experienced suffering or loss of some sort, and we have people around us who we love and trust that enter into that in some way. There are good examples we can look to, and there are examples we can look to that aren't so good. Some good examples that come to mind for me include friends and eventually youth leaders who walked alongside me, someone from a divorced home. There's also many, including several of you here, who walked alongside Faith and I and prayed for us while we struggled with infertility. Some examples of friends and suffering that aren't so good also come to mind, gratefully not near as many as the good examples. But as I was preparing today's sermon, one example stood out to me, which I actually think is a solid representation of what we're about to see from Job's friends. A close family member of mine had just received a terrible diagnosis seemingly out of nowhere. I was still in my early days of seminary, still within my first year living in Dallas. I was reeling from it. Soon after, I was with some friends in one of their apartments. When I shared the news, clearly devastated, one of the friends immediately said, yeah, sin is terrible. In other words, sin was responsible for this diagnosis. It's exactly what it sounds like, right? This wasn't a not-so-good example. This was one of, if not the worst, things you could say to someone in that situation. By the grace of God, that diagnosis was later dismissed after reassessing everything, but the sting remained. Now, taking a step back objectively from a 30,000-foot view and connecting the theological dots, yeah, I can trace back that my fellow newly enrolled seminary student was talking about the fall of creation, And brokenness that we see and experience here is because we don't have shalom. Things are not whole and complete as they should be. But wow, make a mental note of how never to respond to someone experiencing a crisis of suffering like that. 
And that is basically how Job's friends responded to his suffering. I think this text can reveal the shortcomings we have in responding to suffering in our lives and the lives of those around us. So our big idea, the scope of today's sermon, is this. The failure of Job's friends was rooted in their theology, but it was sealed by their lack of humility. We must remember that Christ has equipped us to live with both truth and grace. Mike mentioned last week that they were sitting in mourning with Job, but then uh, at that time they were likely sitting in mourning and even judgment of him and his family for their sins. So here's the first issue that we see with this text. Job's friends had inadequate theology that didn't allow for a righteous person to suffer. Let me say that again. Job's friends had inadequate theology that didn't allow for a righteous person to suffer. Job had to have sinned, or his children did, or elsewhere in his family. Why else would all of this calamity be happening? Peter just gave an example in the scripture reading, picking up in Job 8, 4. Bildad said, If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If they sinned, it only makes sense that God wiped them out. On that mental note from earlier, add this for things never to say in a eulogy. Now, to be clear, they did at points throughout here speak some true statements about God. But this context and their overall theological understanding is the classic health, wealth, and prosperity approach. God rewards good conduct and the the proper amount of faith with physical and material blessings. You'll receive nothing or have things taken from you if you sin or don't have enough faith. Unfortunately, this seems to be the natural tendency in many of us. What have I done to deserve this? I tithe, I listen, I sing, I'm here almost every week. Where did I miss a step? Job was labeled blameless and upright, but he was not perfect. Remember, his blamelessness was attributed as, quote, being one who feared God and turned away from evil. So given the distinction of Job, along with what we know in the backstory of Satan having God's permission to bring pain and suffering on him because of his apparent righteousness, shows us that it wasn't exactly his sin that triggered all of this, but it was to fulfill God's purpose. More on that in a second. It didn't quite compute with Job, as we saw last week in his lament, but it certainly did not compute for his friends. Job was one of the many scriptural examples and references showing how the righteous do indeed suffer. The prophets are good examples of that. James wrote in his letter that they were good examples of suffering and patience. They were ridiculed and even looked at as crazy outcasts for proclaiming messages from God to his people. Granted, they weren't very popular messages at the time. However, they were true messages from God that needed to be proclaimed. You have Stephen in the New Testament being stoned for the same thing. One of the more revealing examples that correlates with Job's situation pretty well takes place in John chapter 9. Jesus was near the pool of Siloam. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We see other examples, and of course the direct statement in Romans 8 that tells us God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been according to who have been called according to his purpose, his purpose. There is purpose in suffering. Our ultimate good, which is what God works for, is living in more dependence on him, more of him, less of us. And for that, our independence eventually needs to be broken. And of course, it's necessary to point out that the theology of Job's friends, which didn't account for the suffering of the righteous, is actually the basis of our faith and hope. God sent his only son to live among us as the only righteous person so that he could suffer an unfathomable amount of pain. If you are here and you don't know the significance of Christ dying for your sin and being risen to life so that you can have new life eternally in the presence of our triune God, please talk to me or any of our leadership. There's nothing more that any of us would love to talk to you about and what that means for you today. All right, so again, while not everything Job's friends said was false, technically, their base of theology was that God rewards righteousness with health, wealth, and prosperity. Moreover, their conduct and approach toward Job was one of arrogance and rebuke. Eliphaz, the first of the friends to speak up, says this, picking back up in Job chapter 4, verse 7. Remember, Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, friend, why would God punish righteousness? You brought this upon yourself. Here's the second issue we see in this text. Job's friends, wielding their limited view with no humility, lacked both grace and truth. So they lacked both the proper understanding and the proper approach. It was a failure on two counts. This issue is better understood for us in application to how we live and interact as Christians. One thing, though, to reference back to Job's friends is that they were leaning fully on their own understanding. They were, in today's lingo, dropping some truth bombs. Is it just me Or do Job's friends slightly remind you of current-day social media Christians? Do we seek growth so we can be more prepared, which in many cases puffs us up to push back against the terrible comments being said to us? Or do we seek growth within the context of the kingdom of heaven, lessening ourselves to hear someone's experience and understand the insecurity, rage, or anguish behind those comments, to lament with them, Imagine that, lamenting the hardships in the life of the one seemingly attacking you instead of lining up your own truth bombs and doing it with them, connecting with them. I'm pretty sure that's one example of loving our enemies, which is what Jesus told us we should do. Brothers and sisters, we don't have hope because we have knowledge. We have hope by God's grace through faith while having the knowledge that we are incapable of completely understanding how and why God works. Without faith, we have no hope because we have no salvation. And to counter what I brought up earlier about having enough faith in the prosperity gospel, 
Jesus' reference to how much faith we need was a mustard seed, a virtually infinitesimal speck. It's not our amount of faith. What makes our faith significant is the greatness of the one we have faith in. When we remember that faith is what drives us and moves us forward, humility is the natural byproduct. And it's not quite the product we always want, is it? As my mom reminded me a few days ago when we exchanged messages about past hardships in the lives of friends, she said, faith makes things possible, not easy. Perhaps we tend to equate our saying what needs to be said because it's right with what I mentioned earlier about the prophets. There's a big difference with the prophets being the direct mouthpieces of God and we being people simply obedient to him and living out the model and example he gives us through the written word, scripture, and the living word, Jesus Christ. Also, while the prophets delivered some harsh messages declaring God's wrath, they delivered the message they were given. They didn't build up and throw more wrath at the people if they didn't respond in the moment the way they should have. We are bearers of the truth, proclaimers of the truth. We don't ransack people with the truth. And when the truth does pierce people's hearts, it's not because of us. It's the work of God. We are vessels. We are representatives of the source of truth. Made in his image, yes, but we are not the source of truth. And with truth from God, you need to have grace. Grace. Contrary to what many public speakers, online battles, and private arguments will present, we can't represent and proclaim the kingdom of God and satisfy our ego at the same time. Why? Because when we truly represent and give evidence of God's advancing kingdom, we show ourselves to be completely dependent on him. Our wisdom, our intellect, even our experience with evidence is insufficient without God's saving grace and employing the gifts and talents he granted us through the Holy Spirit when we have faith. We have nothing to boast about. What we have is the one we can point to, and it's not us. A guy I met when I moved here, my age, has an interesting story. He finished his THM at Dallas Seminary in three years, pretty unheard of. He immediately went on and powered through his PhD in systematic theology. He now has a fairly large, regular audience, both on a podcast and his congregation where he serves as the lead pastor. Smart dude. He could go toe-to-toe with practically anyone explaining things. You want to hear the intricate, slam-dunk, no-way-out logical argument that led to him trusting Christ? A friendly guy sitting down with him in college and giving him a four spiritual laws gospel tract. Very, very simple. It cut through the intellectual wall and humbled him in repentance for his sins and waywardness from the Lord. Yeah, he's a smart guy. But what drives him, secures him, and endures is his faith. So how are we approaching those we disagree with? Perhaps those we think are a danger to so many. The goal method is grace and truth. Jesus held them together, full of grace and full of truth, as John says in the opening chapter of his gospel. Theologically speaking, God cannot cease to fully be what he is. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. He dispenses the full measure of his character 
and can do so simultaneously. Remember that. We'll come back to that in a second. Grace and truth doesn't really mean telling the truth in a nice way. I mean, you can softly, gently, while smiling, inform someone that their hair is on fire. It gets the message across, but it's not really as helpful as it could be. Grace entails empathy, understanding without belittling, and not valuing the person based on if they concede their argument or agree with you. I've been through this with our students over the past several weeks, but 1 Peter 3 is practically the go-to place in Scripture for the reason that we do apologetics. Verse 15 in 1 Peter 3. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. All right. Truth bomb time. Oh, wait. There's a semicolon after you. What comes after that? Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Ooh, that doesn't really scream truth bomb, does it? Also, I love that gentleness and respect comes before having a good conscience. Because after proving someone wrong, we might conflate having a good conscience with that satisfied ego I mentioned earlier. All right, there's a comment. Let's see how this ends. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It can't simply be practice what you preach. It's stand behind Show ongoing evidence of. Let's see it lived out in the context of your conduct, character. Let's see you meet conflict with reconciliation. Let's see you humbled and transformed by what you preach. Because the first person you should preach to, I should preach to, is myself. Oh, and coming full circle, look at the next verse, which wraps up that section of 1 Peter 3. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If we quote scripture, pray, claim a label or a title, and end up wielding that position for personal gain, selfishness, or power, then we aren't giving a defense for the hope that is in us. We're instead giving a defense for the knowledge and ability that is in us. So when people revile us for that behavior in Christ, it is we who will be rightly put to shame. The only title or label to claim there would be whitewashed tomb. So how should we proceed? What should we keep in mind? Grace without truth is not truth. I know, right? I mean, I am terrible at math, but I was eventually able to come up with this. What about this one? Truth without grace really isn't truth either. Ah, see, you went too far there, Jeff. Grace is preferred, but we don't need it. No, we need them both. No, Jeff, we can have facts without grace. Yes, we can, but that's missing the point. Remember what I said a moment ago about how God is able to simultaneously demonstrate multiple traits and elements of his character? Let me show you. This is what we aspire to. Clearly, I could have easily gone into graphic design. I'm very proud of this. All right, so we walk a tight wire above a wall that separates grace and truth, with a giant scale attempting to have a proper amount on each side, a balance, if you will. 
We know the truth. The Holy Spirit within us knows and technically is the truth, but we are not the truth, so we can't fully master it. And as I mentioned earlier, through Scripture, we need grace for ourselves. So trying to turn around and show that to others is partially possible, but also very difficult. Now, take this example up here and look next at our example and why faith and humility are crucial. Here's our example in Jesus. Jesus doesn't have a wall, no tightrope, no scale. Now, granted, he took on flesh, and that's no small feat. But observe both grace and truth simultaneously, the fullness of Perfect unity, complete. All of who God is and proclaims is truth, capital T, truth. Spoiler alert, at the end of Job, God says to Eliphaz, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. But God, we said factual things. You stand against evil and injustice. You did not speak the truth. God in his fullness is truth. He cannot cease to be less than that fullness. It's all or nothing. So mentioning one part without acknowledging the fullness is not capital T truth. When our best conduct and our best intellectual arguments aren't anywhere near God's consistent greatness, how can we be anything except humble. This is certainly a wake-up call for me regarding how I interact with others and live out my faith. What does it reveal to you? Here's some closing application to think about. How much do I lead with humility? How much integrity do I have in my humility? Do I convey kindness while silently judging, scoffing, or condemning like Job's friends probably did sitting with Job? Or am I fully sincere? When I assert that someone isn't listening to me, am I, actually, am I actually listening to them? Am I reducing the suffering of others as a problem to solve? Moreover, is my faith lived out by reducing God and how to live as a black and white formula or a set of lists? Finally, can I really trust God's sovereignty and know that he works for our good in hard times for me or my friends? I mentioned at the beginning that Christ has equipped us through his provision. It's his provision that we have the Holy Spirit, which is where the grace and truth come from. It doesn't come from our strength, but because of our surrender. And when we live out that reality of truth as only coming from the God who loved us enough to take on flesh and suffer an amount we can't begin to imagine so we could experience eternal bliss in his presence and free of pain, we prove that it's his victory, graciously given to and proclaimed by his humble servants. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the model and example and love shown through Jesus Christ full of grace and full of truth. God, please help us to prioritize and remember that our arguments, our proof, our conduct 
should never rise above our humility. And I pray that as we would go forth and enter into the suffering of friends and family and even in our own lives, we would remember your presence, your sovereignty, your never-ending presence in our lives walking with us through that suffering. And if we can't think of any other reason for that suffering or purpose other than drawing closer to you, may we rejoice because that is enough. We thank you for this time that we can gather together. We pray that, we, that you would hear our worship now, and that we would continue to move about, moving together with grace and truth. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.